our discussion about As an Enemy, the second part of our Subversions, which is a collaboration between Cultural DC and Baltimore-based curator Terry Henderson. Uh, I'm Christy Maselman, the Executive Director of Cultural DC, and thank you all for joining us today. Uh, with us Thanks today... Hi. With us today uh, is Terry Henderson. Terry is a curator and co-director of WDLY and a staff writer for Be More Art. She is also the gallery coordinator for Connect and Collect Gallery. Uh, Terry has been published in the St. James Encyclopedia of Hip Hop Culture. Her work as co-director of WDLY addresses the shrinking gap between the spaces that contemporary artists of color inhabit and the resources of the power structures of the art world through curation and artistic production of events. Uh, in her work as a staff writer um, for Be More Art, she highlights the voices of black, brown, queer, and non-traditional artists and creatives. More recently, Henderson has founded the Black Collagists, an arts incubator designed to research and collect the work of Black collage artists internationally. Also joining us is Brandon Soderberg. Brandon is a Baltimore-based reporter covering drugs, police, and protest. He is the co-author of I Got a Monster, The Rise and Fall of America's Most Corrupt Police Squad, and the co-producer of the upcoming documentary book, documentary based on the book. Brandon is formerly the editor-in-chief of the Baltimore City Paper. He has written for The Intercept, Vice, The New York Times, and many other publications. Uh, also joining us is Marshall Eddie Conway. Eddie is a former member of the Black Panther Party, uh, the Baltimore chapter. He was wrongfully convicted of murder in 1970, and he served 43 years in the Maryland prison system. During incarceration, he played a leading role in a variety of prisoner-supportive initiatives, including the formation of the Maryland chapter of the United Prisoners Labor Union and a friend of a friend, a mentoring project that promotes personal and political development. Eddie is also the author of The Greatest Threat, The Black Panther Party, and co-author of Martial Law, The Life and Times of a Baltimore Black Panther. Eddie is president of Tubman House, a neighborhood-based organization working to ensure all residents of the Sandtown Winchester community have access to education, food, health care, and land, and a voice in the social practices that affect their lives. Um, Bilfina Yawan is a Baltimore-based writer, researcher, organizer, and womanist born in Liberia, West Africa. Bilfina is the author of Teaching Gold Ma How to Heal Herself, the co-creator of Four Black Girls Considering Womanism Because Feminism is Not Enough, and a core member of Press Press. Her art and organizing work have also been featured in Time Magazine, The Nation, City Paper, The Baltimore Sun, and WYPR. Bilfina's work uses a womanist approach and centers women's health and well-being, intersectionality, and abolition. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so Terry, why don't you talk a little bit broadly about the project? Okay, um, so I guess we could like, starting with specifically subversions as an enemy, um, and I think we'll get into this later. I just wanted to continue this like kind of um, connection of telling a Baltimore story in DC with this project. And I knew that after the first half of Subversions, which is about like citizenship and place and who gets to call themselves an American, I knew that I wanted to focus on race for the second half of the project. Um, and I had worked with Brandon before um, on a, we worked together on an exhibition at Current Space Gallery. 
in Baltimore. And in that exhibition, um, we, he uh, helped, um, we displayed, I think it was five TVs that had different footage from the, from the documentary that was to accompany his book that was supposed to be released last year. But of course, COVID got in the way of, of that documentary coming out. Um, and then there's also the use of body cam footage in that. And I, I just remember that was the part of the exhibition that stuck with me because that was all, like, it wasn't fantasy. It was all actual things that happened that affected real people, predominantly Black people in Baltimore City. Um, and I just thought that this would be a good opportunity to talk about policing and how this, yes, this um, GTTF in Baltimore City is <coughs> abhorrent and disgusting, but it's also like a microcosm of what's happening across the entire United States of other um, terrible actions by, by cops. So that's where that came from. The title comes from a clip with uh, Marshall Eddie Conway talking about the roots of policing coming from slave catchers and how they treat people of color or, um, as an enemy. So I was inspired by that. Uh, and that's where we got the title from. And so uh, Brandon, do you want to jump in and help me out since you know more about your book than me? <laughs> yeah, I believe. Yeah, I do know. Yeah. Um, so last year, really briefly, um, I, co-authored a book about Baltimore cops, specifically Dirty Cops in Baltimore, the Gun Trace Task Force. Um, that book sort of, I gathered a lot of material for that book, and among that was a number of body camera and surveillance footage of police committing crimes, which I found really powerful and also got frustrated with the way that that sort of stuff is hard to get. It either means you sort of filled out a number of really complex forms that are intentionally complex that you then submit to the police and you hope the police actually decide to give you what you've asked them for and what you have the right to, or you obtain them through a lawyer or something because they've been used as evidence in a trial. Either way, that's a huge barrier between like uh, a reporter getting that information, the public being able to see it, and then the reporter ends up being the one who sort of filters that. So you might see a clip of it on the news, or you might see the police present it, and the police might present it as a very different way. They might tell you, you're literally not seeing what you're seeing on camera. Um, so out of that, um, I had this idea um, to kind of start presenting this information in public. Um, there's a sort of uh, Twitch uh, public public television style channel in Baltimore called Quarren TV. Um, I showed the footage in full on that. I also showed some footage of um, on inauguration day where uh, DC police were really beating up protesters, showed that footage in full and kind of ran a chat narrating it, um, just kind of des describing what you're seeing. Um, from there, Terry suggested we do something at Current. And so that was a mix of a couple of really powerful clips from the documentary based on my book, including uh, clips of Eddie discussing the history of policing its origins of slave catching and also then showing this footage on a TV out of a window for anyone to kind of go by and see. Okay. So that was interesting. It had some limits. The main limit was you had to know what you're seeing already. And, and with one, which was the point you were watching almost 27 minutes of a really uh, illegal arrest. Um, for this exhibition, then I decided to kind of make short films with my friend, Sean McTiernan, who's a video artist and podcaster. We made these short films that kind of narrate you through this body camera and tell you what you're looking at. So you can really see, for example, in one, these officers stop someone, seize uh, cocaine, then steal it, and they later sell it. Um, you can barely tell that's what's happening on the camera. But if I slow it down and sort of put some notes around it, visually, you can understand it. So that's kind of the inspiration for this. Um, the last thing I'll throw in there is that kind of connects this larger larger picture of policing. In particular, what I really like about having this in Washington, D.C. 
is that Washington, D.C. has a gun recovery unit that operates really similarly to the Gun Trace Task Force. I can't possibly suggest that that Gun Trace Task, that gun unit in D.C. is also robbing people and stealing drugs, but they are routinely violating people's rights. And as gun units often are, they um, vilify and target uh, young black men almost exclusively. We've replaced the war on guns with the war, the war on drugs with the war on guns in terms of it comes to how we police black communities. Um, this gun recovery unit in D.C. works the same, has been sued for violating Fourth Amendment rights, lying about how they obtained a gun and those kinds of things. So there's kind of a direct parallel between, you know, a city that's a 30-minute drive away. Um, and then in addition, of course, we had a summer of just nothing but out-of-control police capture on our Twitter feeds. And if you're out there on the streets, you saw it in person. So kind of what, I thought that was a really good way to kind of tie that all together. And with the D.C.-Baltimore connection to me is really specific. It's just like thing I'm going to yell about for the rest of my life, which is there are these gun units that are destroying lives. and treating uh are violating rights every day under the justification that you can do that because you might find a gun if you stop say every black person that passes through ward eight or ward seven for example i appreciate you saying that because i had kind of forgotten um how i first saw the footage but it was on foreign tv um and i remember just seeing it and being not knowing what was going on and it wasn't until i saw like your commentary in the stream and i was like oh like wow like this is actually like extremely fucked up but and this is actually like this actually happened and i i think it was i think i might have messaged you on twitter and i've been like this is crazy i can't believe it um so yeah i appreciate you reminding me of that sure so how did you and marshall eddie conway start like get together for the documentary if you don't mind so um I mean, I think we just, uh, my co-author Baynard actually did that interview, um, but I think we just asked Eddie, and Eddie is very uh, kind with his time. Um, but I think that um, Eddie was, you know, you were, Eddie, you were a crucial voice for us to make sure we interview because you gave us the long tale of police violence, that this wasn't something that for younger folks, including myself, maybe started in the early 2000s when I started going to protests or for some started in 2014 in Ferguson or 2015 in Baltimore, everyone sort of enters this stuff on their own. But Eddie, you had this sort of deeper and uh, understanding and knowledge of this and also the historical perspectives. That's why I wanted to make sure to interview him. I think that's why that clip kind of is really important in the documentary. Thank you. And then, Bilfina, I think that when we were thinking of people who could be involved and Brandon mentioned your name, I immediately was like, absolutely, yes. I'm such a fan of your work. And I also know that um, you have been just like, you're a champion of abolition, but also just about the Keith Davis Jr. trial. I wanted to kind of, like, your perspective on that. So if, if you could talk to us a little bit about your work as an abolitionist and what you think the state of policing is like in Baltimore for people who might not know. Thank you so much. I'm so glad um, that I'm here. And I think this is a wonderful thing that you all have done. Um, yeah, so I mean, one, in terms of abolition, I love that you all contextualized it with Eddie saying like, policing comes directly out of slavery um, and that uh, policing is, right, the reform of slavery. But I'd like to take it actually a step further. What a lot of people don't know also about the Baltimore police. So. Um, in the 1800s, around um, Maryland, specifically Baltimore, had the highest, around 1830, population of free uh, enslaved Black folks than any other um, state uh, in the U.S. 
Um, and of course, we know after the Nat Turner Rebellion that a lot of white folks, white Southerners were like, we need to get these little free black folks out of here because they're inciting other people to begin uprisings, right? And so what actually happened, we can talk about all of the other systemic things that was put in place, um, but uh, Baltimore or Maryland um, actually deported uh, free black people to Liberia, where, where, which is where I'm from. And so the beginning of the Baltimore Police Department was not just based in slavery and catching black folks and putting them back into slavery, but also the Baltimore Police Department served as almost like ICE, actually. And their job was to go around Baltimore and figure out who were the free enslaved black folks who were out in the streets. And if they did not have a job or they didn't have a white person who could speak to their character, these police departments would take them to the sheriff's office and ultimately say, you're going to be deported back to Liberia. And so that is a context to Baltimore policing a lot of people don't have, which is that they serve the role of forced deportation of black people. Um, and so it also plays into this a question of citizenship that we brought up like who is a citizen in this country who deserves that citizenship rights and also what is the role of policing in that um, because oftentimes we limit what we think policing actually does in this country right and people think that policing is just confined to issues of like um, crime and issues of incarceration when really policing is in every part in every system right of this world that we live in and so we look at a case like Keith Davis Jr. Um, and what we know about Keith is that he has spent just about his whole entire life within the criminal justice system starting um, as a youth. Keith has only spent about two birthdays outside of cage in his entire life, right? And so what we see is this entrapment of lives, quite literally, um, where folks cannot grow beyond the cages of prison. Um, we think about us, um, uh, this project in New Orleans where they actually do is they, each person is given a six by nine bed, right? And what they do is they um, write letters to imprisoned people and the imprisoned people tell them how they would like to create their garden. And then once they have um, planted all of these seeds, they take a door cell and they place it in front of the six by nine bed. And what happens is that these flowers became to begin to blossom, but what we see is that they're confined by the doors, right, that has been placed. And so the whole idea of quite literally how lives are stunted within prisons. And so at the core of it, I think that I always say abolition is not just a matter um, of um, what we need to do in this country in terms of like, reconciling the deep dehumanization of black folks, but also an issue of morality at core of it is an issue of integrity, but also it's an issue of logic, logic, right? Like policing don't work. <laughs> like across the board, like forget all the feelings and morality, put ethics aside. It simply does not work. If it was a business and we had a business meeting and the manager had to bring the numbers and say, this is what we've been doing. Everybody at the business would say, uh-oh, sorry, baby, the money is not adding up we need to end this business 
But for some reason, the United States of America continuously places um, its bad faith into a business. And we know why that is, right? Because policing is directly um, connected uh, to the continual bondage of Black folks. Um, and so I just wanted to add in that piece and kind of contextualize it a little bit to take it a step further of why we say abolition um, and why policing just simply cannot exist. Um, thank you so much, Belfina. Um, yeah, I mean, I wanted to throw in some stats and I wanted to real quick about policing not working. I pulled this up really quick. Um, in Washington, D.C. in particular, the gun unit there, when they do what are called pat downs, which is supposed to be like surface level touching of people, it's essentially glorified uh, stop and frisk. They're obtaining a gun 5% of the time they do that. When they, when they approach black men on the street and they ask them, can they search you? which who's going to say yes to that? You certainly don't have to. But when people do, they uh, end up getting a gun out of that 1% of the time. And recently, a report uh, showed that black people are seven times as much uh, likely to be arrested in uh, D.C. as white people, and they're more, 13 times as likely to be killed by police as white people. Um, D.C. is something like 47% black, I believe. I mean, back in the 70s, it was up to 70%. It was the chocolate city. But that's something I just sort of want to frame in terms of ineffectiveness and data, like, you know, any math, I don't know math well, but any math person could tell you that's not strong data and convincing data for these gun units. What I did want to do, because I kind of think I apologize, Eddie, I kind of stepped on you getting to talk is like, could you maybe discuss a little bit of what you told Baynard and what, you know, you said otherwise around for the documentary about sort of the origins of policing and then your own experiences with policing in Baltimore in the 60s? In, in terms of background, and I have to, um, uh, I have to say that so far, I'm I'm really impressed with the with the focus and the direction that this is going in. In terms of um, the police uh, replacing the slave system, and uh, actually to add to that, the penitentiaries. When you go back to 1865, you'll find out that there was a explosion of penitentiaries all across the South and across the rest of America. Uh, prior to that, there were poor houses, uh, uh, jails where you paid off your fines or, or even in some cases, uh, indentured servitude. But then all of a sudden, uh, once the slave population was released, there's an explosion of police and penitentiaries. So they're, they're connected together. And the reason why I wanted to connect them together is because I, I disagree. Policing is working. The problem is it's not working for us. It doesn't work for the population. Policing is designed to protect the property of the ruling class, protect the property of, of the people that matter, protect the concept of white supremacy even. Um, and so it's working effectively because what we do, what we see, if we look on the international level, we'll see 800 military bases spread out around the world. And those 800 military bases control and influence the resources of the rest of the world's populations to the point of extracting the wealth that they need to bring to Europe or to bring to uh, North America or bring to any other Japan, et cetera, a highly industrialized society that's been moved on, need these resources. That's an external, that's what 
Eisenhower was talking about when he said, beware of the prison or military industrial complex. Well, the other side of that coin is domestically, it's the prison industrial complex. And it does the same thing those 800 bases does around the world. It controls the population, it controls the resources domestically. And what it actually does, it, it scoops millions of people up. And, and in fact, this machinery so far has affected 77 million people to date. Um, it's in prisoners, ex-prisoners, their families, etc. It scoops up these people and then it put them in these far-flung prisons in rural areas and it provides employment for one set of the population, the rural white population, and it provides uh, employment for another set of the population, the black, poor, uh, people of color, and poor whites uh, in terms of slave labor because they go in these cells and they become a product. And so both of those things work together. You got an international apparatus and you got a domestic apparatus. The police is the point of the spear and the domestic apparatus. And that's why they're sucking up so many people. That's why America has 25% of the world's prison population in 5% of the world's population. And that's why what we see is that there's a need at all times to maintain control of that internal population so it doesn't get out of hand. And so how you do that, you do it with fear. Uh, you do it by constant, the, the broken window syndrome. Any little thing, any idea, you touch me or you, you pulled your arm back when I tried to arrest you or I reached for you. That's resisting arrest. Any little thing at all leads to you being put in that machine. And just a, like a final idea is that when you get in that machine, pass through it through the criminal justice system, uh, so on, end up in the prisons, you are abused, your rights are violated, you are exploited. You get angry, you fight back, you get beat. At the end of that process, you're taken out of that environment, rural Cumberland, rural Allegheny County, rural Somerset, Hager Sound, et cetera, and you're dumped back in the urban areas. And you're dumped in the urban areas, angry, frustrated, and mad. And you there is where this violence that we're seeing in the cities are created. It's right there and it comes right. And then it justifies the fear and the terror of the population from the people that has been put in these predicaments, processed through that system, sent in the community. And now the community is scared of its own citizens because its citizens is mad and angry and they will act out and they can't go up the Cumberland and act out because they'll be stopped on the highway and killed you know so they act out in the areas that they're in so policing is working excellently this unfortunately is almost like a time that would predate nazi concentration camps but i'm gonna stop right there 
really quickly, I wanted to make a Eddie, because what I love that Eddie did is brought the international lens to policing, because a lot of people do not understand that policing is international and that it is an arm of imperialism and white supremacy. And I bring attention to what we see what's happening in Nigeria with end SARS and where we have all of these. And they didn't just happen in Nigeria. Mali had its own uprising in the midst of that. Liberia has had an uprising too, where they are literally saying like, these are all of these violent practices that that our policing unit has. And what we find is a lot of these countries are not even reporting to local folks, but that they're actually still receiving their demands and direction from their colonizers. And so this idea that a lot of people have that policing in terms is limited to the state, it is not. It is actually a global practice and the US has influenced the ways in which other countries look at policing. Because a lot of countries did not have the militarization that they have and the level of organizing in terms of policing until white supremacy hit down and was like, hold up, we got some new tricks to show y'all. Look at this cool thing you can do with your cops. Hey, 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 you need something to impress your people. We got it for you. And now a lot of countries, we're seeing that happening and the people are um, also having uprisings. And so when we think about decolonization work particularly, um, because we all should have an international lens, abolition, specifically the abolition of policing, is part of the work of decolonization as well, because policing is international. And I would just throw in really quick, the other thing you have that then goes on top of that is this strange way in which then policing that we've outsourced to other countries then gets sort of further improved by those countries. Um, one of the most exa great examples is like, or most powerful examples to me and stark examples is that uh, Baltimore police, Baltimore County police, and many other police departments train with the uh, train in Israel and learn what the Israeli Defense Force kind of learned from us. And so you have this direct parallel between Israel and its impression of Palestinians and um, even Baltimore police and their impression of uh, working black people and poor black people in particular, especially in East and West Baltimore. And so it kind of keeps gathering more and more uh, nefarious uh, strategies and tactics, um, which again, I think is what I hope you maybe see a little bit of in those videos in the exhibition, the way that these are, these stopping people for no reason. That was kind of one I thought of immediately when Eddie mentioned that was stopping a man in a gas station, one of these videos who's not wearing a seatbelt. Why is he not wearing a seatbelt? Because he just got in his car, he's driving his car from the pump to the air pump tires in his car. They see him and they arrest him for that because they think he's a. They think he has drugs or guns in his car. They make that lie up and say he was driving without a seatbelt, which no reasonable person would ever claim that was how you would interpret someone going from a pump to an air pump. But yeah, that it's this bigger kind of trade-off that keeps going back and forth and that now we're learning, the police and the states are learning from the people decades earlier they trained because they've now improved our these oppress oppressive tactics. I think it's really, this is great. And I think having this kind of political and historical significance and adding that layer to this is really important. And Terry, I want to, I want to talk, I want to kind of bring it back into the project as kind of Brandon's bringing it back for a little bit and, and kind of talk about this um, and why it was like important for this project for as an enemy to, to be part of the second part of subversions. I think, you know, when we first started talking about this project back in the fall, we knew there were going to be two parts. Mm -hmm. We really kept it really open, right? In terms of like, we didn't define it. We didn't talk about what we wanted it to be. And I think in, in that way, it's kind of come natural, right? I think mm -hmm. geopolitical games came, you know, obviously 
at a time leading up to the election. And I think I want to talk to you, I want you to talk a little bit about like why, why this was important for this to kind of round out this project. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so when we first started talking, I think that it was probably like in September, it was sometime before the election and, and like you proposed a two part project. And I like immediately, I knew that we wanted to do something because the election was fast approaching. And I was like, in my mind, I was like, okay, who do I know that makes political work that can get something out quickly that also makes sense for DC as like, as a forum or, or as a space. Um, then I think that after that was Miguel Brasile's geopolitical games. Um, like I said before, briefly, it's, it was about who gets to call themselves an American. Um, when I first wrote that artist statement, I was saying that like subversions the two-part project was a, a letter to the United States government um, talking about like divisiveness and like the history. And then, and then specifically the second part was gonna talk about race, but also reparations and atonement and um, just correcting of, of histories that has not happened still, even though there has been a change of the guard, there's a new leader and these things are still happening. Um, so I think, so that, so that was the first part was geopolitical games. And then I think that we were thinking about doing something to coincide with the inauguration, and then um, things just happened so quickly, and then the the, um, the insurrection happened, and it was just like, uh, and I, and, I, and I knew that I didn't want to just like not just to minimize anything. I wanted to again like to continue the thread of because I, I originally thought of using uh, artists from out of state, like from Texas, um, two black artists, um, and I was like, I want to do another tell another Baltimore story again. Like I am not from Baltimore. Um, but I've been here fully in it for four going on five years. This is my home at this point. And um, just wanting to, like, again, like tell a Baltimore story um, in this space in DC, like, which is what Brandon was saying. It's like, because I saw that connection too, intuitively. And he, he's able to elaborate on it better than I could. But with, so when I, so I, again, like I had always been thinking about working with Brandon again after we did the first, um, exhibition at Current Space. I had originally thought that it might have been at the Connect and Collect Gallery, that didn't happen, but I was like, okay, like, I really wanna do something with this footage again, and I need, and I, I'm always just like, more people need to see this because it's terrible. Like, I, people need to, not the quality, but like, the things that are happening are so unjust and gross, and it seems like a really, like, horrible, like, true crime, uh, ID channel thing that occurred, but it, it actually happened, like, people, like, I don't know how much of I can say this without like getting in legal trouble, but it's like people's lives were affected. Like people ultimately lost their lives. People lost their freedom. And and I don't know what the city of Baltimore done, has done to like correct those things, but it's just, these are real, a lot of black people that were affected by the actions of this group of white and, and white and non-white cops. So, so that was that. And then it was really easy to work with Brandon when we did the thing. Um, the project at Current Space, and so I think we just kind of talked and we were trying to figure out because, like, um, like he said, those TVs were just like basic, like tube TVs that were in the in the um, window at that space. And then I think when I saw Miguel's video being projected, and I also realized the power of like what 14th Street was because when I originally said yes to the project, I, I'm not from here, so like I went to DC and I was like, wait a second, this street is busy as hell. Like this is a busy street. Like there's a lot of traffic. And I thought that whatever I wanted to show again, I wanted it to be high impact and make people stop and make people think. And I knew that the, the footage would work in this way, but in, it is terrible things that are occurring, but it's not overtly like graphic. Like there's nobody being, there's no like gratuitous violence or anything like that. Um, 
so that that's why I wanted that's why I wanted to do this project there and and it it, it is related to the current space show but it's different it's like a child of that um like Brandon said like I, I think it's the subtitles are very powerful because if you don't know what's going on you it, you're told what's going on without having to have audio and um so that's why that's why I chose I think the location is really important yeah. too, because I think for those that don't know, you know, our theater is located in kind of the historic 14th and U Street mm -hmm. um, kind of corridor. Mm -hmm. We're, you know, very near Howard University. So there's a long history there. Yeah. And I think just being able to put it into that context is yeah. interesting. But yeah. I want to I talk to Brandon a little bit, because like as a journalist and a writer, you know, I think um, in some ways there's like, it, it makes sense, right? That like that there is this um, natural, you know, like a documentary might come out of some of that, right? And so, but I want to, I want you to talk about that significance, and then also kind of as you think about that, right? Because I think, I think what's exciting is this is this collaboration, but I think taking that, taking the the journalism and the writing and the documentary, and then thinking about that as an art installation, and I think. For you, I'd love to hear kind of your thoughts is like, I know you guys did this in Baltimore. So how do you wrap your head around that, right? How do you go from like, here's this documentary, but now I want to, I want to, I want to translate it into this because in, in some ways they're very different, right? And it, it, I think it's great because it allows you to reach different audiences um, in telling those stories. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, for me, the benefit of the, what was exciting about this show and the current space one, but especially this one because it's so big, is that it can function as basically something like public art. Mm -hmm. um, I like that idea. I like that. Um, my you got you got to pay twenty eight bucks to buy my book. I mean, you can you can pirate it on the internet, and if you don't have the money, you should pirate it on the internet. But um, you know, or steal a copy from your chain bookstore. Don't steal from an independent bookstore. But you're the library. If, but or a library oh those two yes there's the legal way to borrow a book um anyway um you know if you don't have 28 bucks don't have access to that i don't have a library card you have fees whatever this is at least some way to engage with this stuff and i think it hopefully make it a little more accessible same with the documentary um i'm very excited about the documentary but it's you know it's 90 minutes to two hours of someone's time um and it kind of fits within a format that i think we're familiar with I mean, i think i hope what the documentary like the book does is invert these elements of the story of the of, of true crime. What I tried to do is tell a true crime story where the cops were the bad guys and not the good guys, and focuses on the people that were victimized. Same with the documentary. Um, and I hope, and this is kind of a balance between that. But the core of it is you're getting to see this footage that I think you should be able to see, mitigate it. As I said, we purposely pick stuff that's not um, overtly violent. Police are violence. The appearance of police is violence, to be clear, but yeah. um, there's not any abuse or anything like that on these. The, what's happening in terms of uh, violence and police corruption is uh, lies, planted evidence, things like that. And so then narrating through those, I thought was important. And I wanted to make it in the same way that what I occurred to me with the book was I wanted the book to be compelling and entertaining because I also feel like there's this thing in which we want to talk about these things and then there's a very narrow way that the news and the media likes to talk about these things. I wanted to challenge that a little and hopefully make something that was a little more visceral and gripping. And I hope these videos show that. Um, in terms of creating them, it was really just thanks to Terry's insight, like how do I translate the ideas in these videos in a fairly concise form mm -hmm. um, that's then accessible from the street? And so that's why it's really like kind of big titles that kind of tell you what you're looking at, freeze frames that kind of highlight that and things like that. Um, 
I had never really thought about this in any way. And so for me, it's less um, art because I just don't think of myself as a visual artist as it is sort of an act of like another act of like transparency, which as a reporter, I'm really into is like the idea that this information should be public and free and available. So that was kind of the experiment. It's like, how do I meet in the middle between my own journalistic transparency interests and wanting to highlight the problems with policing and sort of make something that still fits within the video installation projection world. Yeah. You talk a lot about the footage and I think that obviously the footage is so the, the body cam footage um, and the dash footage is so striking. Um, I want to talk a little bit about kind of the significance that that footage played kind of in the court case. And then I think I kind of want to open up a little bit of discussion around kind of the use of body cam and in dash footage, because I think as we've seen, even just in the events of the last nine months, like how that's impacting uh, policing. Um, yeah, I can go through. I'll talk really quick because I think I've been talking way too much in this hour. So real quick, um, what you're seeing in this footage is these particular ones were all evidence in trials and were all to some extent shown publicly. And therefore, I also felt more comfortable sort of presenting them out there. I still don't identify the victims, but you can somewhat see victims' faces in them. But that was sort of my compromise. Um, in one incident, what you saw was a um, man who stopped. They then claim they find drugs and cocaine in his car. They then arrest him because he won't give them more information. They then drive to his house and break into his house and look for more cocaine and drugs. Um, what's important about this video is that you don't see what happened before. They conveniently turned the body camera off already when they've stopped him. So why they stopped him is not clear. So they've hidden that truth. How they found the drugs in his car is not clear. If they found drugs in his car, if they were planted, is not clear. Um, then the last thing I'd say with that is that when this went to trial, um, the hearings initially is the dismissed. It was dismissed by prosecutors and judges as not a big deal. We don't care that they forgot to turn their body cameras on. We don't care that you see them break into a house. All we care about is the fact that they had drugs and a gun on them, and that's all that needed to happen. And so it was only after these cops were indicted by the feds that this man wasn't in prison any longer. The same is true of the couple that are had their condo robbed, and the police claim they found a. Uh, drugs in the condo, um, police broke into the condo, then arrested people, then claimed they found heroin in it. They also stole a bunch of stuff, including a uh, Chanel bag from the woman. Um, so again, another case where that again wasn't, and that wasn't um, rejected until weeks after the indictment. Uh, the state's attorney of Baltimore City, Marilyn Mosby, plays a crucial role in um, the Keith Davis Jr. case in terms of prosecuting Davis Jr. over and over again. She also had a role in wanting to secure this conviction. Her perspective was, well, I don't care how the cops got in the, in the apartment. Once they're in there, they found heroin, and therefore these people are bad people because they deal drugs. They need to go to jail. It was only after like public pressure. And then the last one was evidence of drug dealing within the police department. It shows an officer taking cocaine. Then he takes it home, and then he, he offshores it to a Philadelphia police officer who sells it, and they split the money. And so you get to see some of the evidence of that. The camera footage, it shows them stealing it, and a still from a security camera in which the cop put half the cocaine money in the bank account for the other cop that was captured on a camera. So that's kind of what you're seeing there. That was used to try to convict the Philadelphia cop. The other two were used as evidence of police theft and malfeasance. So um, that's sort of what you're seeing. And I guess the big thing here is that it's the message here is that body cameras often show you, show you very clear things. But in these cases, sort of what you're seeing needs to be explained because these police were particularly good at handling and manipulating footage. And it's only through a little bit of analysis on my part that you can really see 
what's actually going on. No, no, no. They've just taken that drug and they put it in the car they shouldn't have taken it in. Mm-hmm. No, no, they're that you can see that guy has a bag, a Chanel bag stuffed under his shirt. He's a cop stealing that. So that's sort of the other side of this body camera footage. Is it not as blatant or explicit as the stuff that we often see but has the same purpose of like showing police uh corruption do you think that i think uh you know given the accountability right that that's that's probably that's like what we're aiming for right do you do you think i know you mentioned that like there was a lot of dismissiveness in terms of like oh we don't care that the cameras have been turned off but i really feel like in the last year the events that have happened across this country that people want that accountability. Do you think that's going to change that? Like it's going to be on the, it like on the part of the police to be responsible for explaining why like their body cameras, do you think, I mean, their body cameras were off or the dash cams were off. I mean, I think, you know, when you're talking about it, that was, you know, a couple of years ago. So, Mm -hmm. but I do think that there's like increased pressure in like in police departments using those for accountability and for documentation. Do you think that that'll change that like the police force will be held to higher standards? I think there's two things that could happen. The police force will be, could be held to a higher standard because outside pressures make them. They will never concede an inch like police sabotage reform. That's what they do. But I do think that in Maryland, at least there's just very small examples. One would be that there's been a push to release police uh, misconduct records publicly. They should be public anyway. Something like that with body cameras, you'd be able to look at a police officer's record and see how many times he's turned his body camera off or conveniently turned it off. Mm -hmm. Um, There's also been a push on a bill um, that I actually am stepping out of my reporter had to testify about before uh, in Annapolis about, which would simply increase. Okay, here's really quickly. When a cop turns his body camera on, it immediately saves the 30 seconds recording before he was turned it on. So there's always this little bit of a record before the cop decides to turn it on. Mm-hmm. There's a really basic bill that wants to expand that to two minutes. So you get two full minutes. I do think in the cases I'm talking about, two full minutes of footage before they decided to turn it off would have radically shifted mm-hmm. your understanding. But these are like, just to be clear, these are like baseline reforms. And so they'll be fought by police. And I think they're really like, uh, what politicians might call common sense reforms that instead are being presented as radical. But I do think that this interest in footage, especially because now that bo- like body cameras mostly help police, they mostly help prosecutors, but they do occasionally capture stuff like this. And when they do, uh, they already cops already got them strapped to their chest. There's really all no way we're going to get them off of their chest. And so if they're there on them, we should increase the accountability. I think there's some moves in Maryland to do that. And that's undoubtedly because of the past summer, the, after George Floyd's death, that there's been something like a political moment for politicians, especially Democrats, to at least try baseline reforms. So I think that's where, that's as hopeful as I can get about that in body camera. Yeah. Eddie, do you want to weigh in here? I, I'd love your perspective uh, on the use of the body cams and the dash cams. No, I think Brandon said it before, you know, uh, I can remember... Uh, or even a Rodney King uh, situation. Or I can remember a case downtown uh, in the Lexington market where this uh, a homeless guy uh, was shot to death on a body cam. Uh, he was bending down, it looked like, to pick up something. Um, and it was clear that he didn't have anything in his hands and he was shot. And then the, the interpretation of those body cams is what we end up getting. Like, well, you don't have the full picture. You don't see what happened beforehand. You did not hear the anger or the hostility 
or you did not see what you saw. Um, I, I think people's cell phones are more important than body cams and dash cams um, because the bottom line is that uh, most of the things that we find out, we find out from uh, interesting individual that happened to be in the area and they turned it, their film on. Yeah. You know, even then, um, whether it's Mosley or, or whoever it is, even then, the state ignores most of that evidence. Uh, just uh, months ago, I believe, uh, at The Real News, we did, uh, uh, Stephen and Taya did a report. Um, well, no, it wasn't them, but it was a report out that the police was looking for a five foot one inch black man went to this house pulled out a six foot four man and locked him up out in the Baltimore county uh, and the whole time the warrant said that they was looking for someone five feet tall uh, and it was on camera but yet he went to jail you know so if if people individuals outside don't use that camera that they have that they are constantly carry with them uh i don't think we can rely on anything that we get uh, from the dash cams or the body cam because there's even in in the event of a violation i don't know whether the bill passed or not but there's that police bill of rights that give them 10 days to get the story together to synchronize what they see uh so uh, we'll end up with a story. And then even when we see what we saw, then the prosecutor uh, or prosecutors uh, have families and associations <clears throat> with the police department, and they're always going to come down. I always maintain, just, just for example, um, Freddie Gray. When Freddie Gray was murdered, he got murdered at Gilmore Homes. He got his neck broke there. And yes, they put him in a van, they gave him a rough ride, but the people that actually caused his death were the three cops that didn't get charged with causing his death. The people that gave him the ride got charged with the death. If his neck hadn't been broken when they put him, we saw them put him in there. If his neck hadn't been broken then, uh, the medical examiner, the prosecutor, et cetera, didn't go along with it, and the state's attorney didn't misindict. They indicted the people that should have gotten the lesser charges, and they, and because they would happen to all be black, you know. So there's politics involved in this, and so black people could stand still and say, "Oh no, 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 they're not responsible. The police on the bicycles are responsible," and but they didn't. And once they let the three that they charged with the heavy charges go, there was nothing they could do with the three that had the lesser charges, and they were the ones that were guilty of the crime. You know, so even when you see that kind of stuff, it's, it, it is a criminal, a, a, and not only institutional racism, because a lot of people that made these decisions were black city officials. Also, it's a case of institutional racism and neocolonialism together uh, 
And it's also a case of uh, mass psychology. You don't see what you see, you know. So uh, it, it, it leaves a lot to be desired. You know, um, every day still, people's rights are being violated, even with the dissent decree here in this city. So, you know, I, I, I put little faith in those cameras in the hands of oppressors. Brandon, I don't know. I don't know the answer to this, and maybe you know. Are they using? You know, I think because people in the last year, there's so much. Uh, there's so many more people that are recording events on their own personal phones. Are are prosecutors and are those being used in these court cases? Do you have any sense, or are they, or are they sticking to kind of just what the police have? Like, I don't. I mean, it kind of takes um a, 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 the the video itself to kind of be viral for lack of a better word before i think it becomes taken seriously by if 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 in the rare occasion where a cop was prosecuted mm-hmm. um you know and those are high profile cases i certainly think that if you have a video of an arrest on a corner it's massively helpful to a defense attorney to help defend that person mm-hmm. um whether it's admitted in court or not it's still incredibly helpful they can gain information from it they can figure little details out but in terms of prosecutors using that when they prosecute police officers that's still pretty limited um but certainly if that shows something that a body camera didn't it could be helpful Mm -hmm. but i think again within the broader scheme of things i think what eddie's saying is of course spot on of just like these things don't rise to the occasion where they have such they have that much power over a case very often right and i was going to say also brandon like we also have to think about it like this is quite literally an issue of systems, right? So the police is not just by themselves. For addition, when we look at Keith's case, Keith didn't get where Keith is simply because of the police. There were judges, like we had a judge quite literally look us dead in the eyes and say, yes, you did make a point. There are so many things that these cops did wrong but I'm not gonna rule in your favor because this is going to set a precedent, which means that I will then have to reverse all of these other cases. And so a lot of times there's this idea that if we come into the courthouse with the truth, well, oftentimes what you see in a courthouse or the case that you see is not all the truth. People forget how much evidence has to be argued about, especially for the defense to even be allowed into that case. And so a jury, or the public, they're not even seeing, by the time a case goes public, you're not seeing the case. You're seeing what the state has created of the case. For example, um, during Keith's um, trial, what the state said is that they did not want the defense to bring up the fact that Keith was the first person shot by the Baltimore Police Department after the death of Freddie Gray. They didn't want any mention of Freddie Gray. They didn't want any mention of the uprising and they didn't want any mention of Baltimore's history and policing. And they said that if there were mentions of those, then somehow the jury would make a connection that they didn't want. And what happened? The judge ruled in their favor. And so you have a jury that's been completely stripped of the necessary context that is required to trial this case, and they're not even hearing the story. But also, what's 
I guess uh, Eddie also brought up was the psychology of this. It don't fucking matter how many goddamn, it, it's not about the visuals and optics of having proof. It's quite literally the fact that black people are not believed and the fact that it, within this country, the police has this sense of innocence no matter what. You could give a citizen off the street corner a body camera footage showing a police doing a bunch of illegal shit and they're going to be like, nah, that's not what's happening. That's not what I see. Right. And because it is quite literally a matter of psychology when you have been taught and conditioned to believe that policing is always right, that everything police do must be right and that they deserve a trust that we don't give everyday common people. Right. And so it's not a matter of do we have enough evidence to prove that what the police has done is incorrect? Do we have body camera footage? Do we have uh, 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 um, uh, 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 citizens who saw it because then we see what happened with Eric Garner. What happened to the guy who filmed Eric Garner? What happened? He was quite literally targeted, imprisoned, and his life, people were coming together to protect him because the police completely outly, like, out, uh, decided that they were going to go after him simply because he released this footage. And so it's not matter of proof. It's quite literally there is, is violent, sadistic thing of policing that is connected to white supremacy and just like the complete vile nature of whiteness is what we see within policing. And then when we bring out the black folks, Baltimore is a black led city. Everything in Baltimore is led by black people. But what we see is an internalization of white supremacy. And what happens is that oftentimes black people become tools of whiteness. And so it's not necessarily that whiteness is not at play in Baltimore. Everything that happens in Baltimore is white supremacy, but is that whiteness now has little black bodies to do its job for it and to stabilize the state. That is what we're seeing. And so all we got to do, abolish this shit. We've been needed to like, what, what is, the clock is fucking ticking. Come on, y'all, abolish this shit. And like, bye, Marilyn Mosby. Also, like, girl, I've had enough of you already. It's, it's because what we see is that Marilyn Mosby gets to play into what we call identity politics, Right, which is this belief that when a black person is heading something, that somehow that thing is less likely to be racist. But time and time again, what we've seen is that Marilyn Mosby is only for the state and she is part of the police. This idea that the state's attorney office is somehow for the people. No, my guy, Keith Davis Jr. was shot by four Baltimore police officers and they shot the wrong guy. One of the officers who shot police, uh, Keith Davis Jr. was investigated by the FBI for aiding a drug trafficking ring. I need everyone to go ask Marilyn Mosby if any of those four officers who shot over 30 shots at Keith Davis Jr. was ever arrested or they've ever faced any kind of accountability. She chose to allow them to skip away. To this day, Keith has seen no whatsoever accountability for being shot. Right. And so it don't and they have foolproof. The guy who they claim Keith robbed went up in court and said, I don't know who that guy is. He didn't rob me. And they were still like, "Uh oh, well, let's go find a gun like, here. Let's throw it. He, he, he committed a murder. So I don't know. I'm going to tell you is it's time to abolish. That's it. That's that's the only answer we got right now. Yeah, I think that's a great segue then to talk about the role of art and activism in 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 creating change. Of course, art has played a role in every movement, every change that ever existed throughout history. Um, and I always like to hold up Emory Douglas, uh, the 
artists for the Black Panther Party. Uh, but art plays a crucial role because one picture is in fact worth a thousand words. Uh, the thing of it is, is how you, how you presenting it. Um, are you presenting it in a liberal kind of way? Are you presenting it in a revolutionary kind of way? Are you presenting it in a, uh, um, um, a futuristic kind of way? You know, I mean, you, your art or, or, or the artist should talk about what's happening. And when you, when you, when you look at what's going on, you have to be quite honest about what you're saying with your art. You know, um, it can look good, but it also has a profound effect on millions of people as they see it. You know, so uh, I think it's very important. It's who's using it, how you're using it, um, uh, who's promoting it, and um, uh, where, you, where you stand. I think it. I think your art probably reflects where you stand and it also um well i, I look at the uh a picture of um just somebody like malcolm x say for instance I, I see malcolm x's picture it's a piece of art but it says a whole lot more and it makes people say well who was that man or what was he doing and so on so um yeah it's very important I mean, I think that um, the the role art, I think the role of art is, especially in terms of how I operate, which I feel most comfortable speaking to, I'm incredibly moved by other forms of art, but I don't know how that operates. But I do know that with my book, at least, what was really important was trying to tell it as a story, which is much um, easier to do in a book form than in a sort of newspaper form. I don't mean a story in a sort of cute way. I mean, in a way where if we sort of put this, put these facts in the narrative order and we identify the major players and we make some radical decisions or I, or my, I don't want to, I, I, I believe radical decisions that we're going to write a story based on people in the underground economy and people that are defense attorneys and public defenders and those are going to be our point of view as opposed to the cops like most stories about police then we will have a different version of that story than you usually understand but we'll have a more uh, complex and truthful one and so that kind of ability to take reality and turn it into some kind of expression which for me is mostly narrative because i'm taking facts i don't want to manipulate facts but by moving into narrative i uh, feel comfortable saying I'm at least trying to do something like art. And I think that's really powerful and kind of see all this stuff next to each other in an order that isn't sort of the news. And I think the news too is part of the, the oppressors that we're talking about. I mean, there's a, we're supposed to love the news because our former fascist president hated the news. But in fact, like the news is pretty bad a lot of the time. It's really racist and it covers black people terribly and it covers police favorably almost all the time. And it has a very narrow definition of like crime that creates fear and stokes paranoia among the business classes and cities and, and increases more police presence. And so finding a way to take that format of the news and make something that feels a little bit closer to art and tells a story and has the complexities of a story and the emotions of a story, I hope is effective. But I think that is the kind of thing that art can do that, uh, article in the Baltimore Sun could never do.
Mm, yeah, I'm thinking about um, specific things. So love that we brought up Emory Douglas. I'm thinking specifically about the creation of pigs, right? We have an entire culture where now we have people who associate pigs with the cops. And that is a brilliant idea that came directly out of the Black Panther Party. Not only was it for adults, but what we saw where the Black Panther Party created children's coloring book and children's book that had images of pigs in it. You watch a documentary where this white cops talks about how he drove up to this group of black kids and this white, this black girl was like, don't nobody want no pig over here. Like she was cussing him out and she referred to him as a pig, right? To show that level of what I call positive or necessary propaganda. And so Emory Douglas and the Black Panther Party took a symbol like the pig and created an entire propaganda around it and gave us a new language to describe the ways in which of the cops. But what was even more beautiful is that it related to children. They saw pigs as these dirty and unkept animals, right? Nobody wants to be like a pig. Nobody want to be around pigs. And they took that and they associated with cops, right? And so our children were able to make those direct correlation and now, years and years later, we have that. I think about Elaine Brown. Elaine Brown released an album um, which was actually helped by the, uh, the Black Panther Party, had their hands in it. It's called Seize the Time. And on that album, a lot of the songs that uh, Elaine Brown released were songs of protest. Um, she actually had a letter in there from Huey Brown, I mean, Huey P. Newton, who wrote about the album because he understood the necessity of music and arts and culture within the Black Panther Party. And so Elaine Brown created this album that kind of served as another um, way of reaching the people. Then I think about SNCC, right, which was specifically youth organizing and the work that they did. And SNCC had what we call the freedom singers. SNCC realized that when they would go to protest, especially sit-ins that took hours and hours, that the people there would get tired. They would get weary. Their soul, like, you know what I'm saying? It was like, it was a very trying time. And so what they realized was that if they brought music, the people could continue in a very different way. And so SNCC created the Freedom Singers and their goal was to literally travel with SNCC to go to places of protest and they would sing to encourage people to continue for hours and hours and hours. And then lastly, I think about Nikki Giovanni who created a gospel album actually. Mind you, Nikki Giovanni ain't no gospel person now, okay? But she created a gospel album. And she talks in her interview about how she realized that the radicalization that was happening within black folks the church, there was a bit of a disconnect and the church was not necessarily connecting to what we saw happening in the Black Panther parties, right? And the other more radical movements. And so Nikki Giovanni decided that she would collaborate with a choir so that she could create poetry and music that church folks could listen to so she could show the intersections, right? Of those two things coming together and finding more and more ways of connecting Black folks with the movement. And so I think that art, especially when you're thinking about Black culture and Black people, music and singing and rhythm and, and arts has always been an active form of the ways in which that we existed. Even down to the uh, plantations, we were singing as a form to continue our time. We would create churches as a way to encourage ourselves. We create braiding patterns as a way to communicate to one another, right? And so music has always, art has always been an important part 
of this work. And I think that more than ever, beginning to see art is not a thing of neutral or that art just doesn't come out of anywhere, um, but that it is and should always be propaganda. There is no art that is not propaganda. And so thinking about what kind of propaganda am I actually creating? And then I think the last thing I'll say um, is, uh, I didn't mention this, but SNCC also came out, because this is an important part, with uh, a pro-Palestine um, zine. They created a zine that specifically spoke to what was happening in Palestine. And at the time, they were talking about the connections of policing, military, all of that within the United States and the U.S. relationship with Israel, right? And so they created and was actually one of the first organizing group to create a statement standing in a solidarity, solidarity um, with Palestine and a zine so that younger youth could understand what the conditions were in Palestine. So I think those are just specific examples I wanted to show of what it looks like when we bring our art and organizing together. Um, God, let me just jump in one minute here. Uh, uh, sister, you are exactly on time. There's one point of clarification that I have to kind of like bring up. The coloring book, issue the black panther party didn't make that coloring book the fbi made that coloring book and the cointel pro the counterintelligence program made that book and used it as one of the justifications to attack the black panther party uh, and so that went out into history but the fact is that once we got the cointel profiles and papers and whatnot we had been saying all along we didn't do that then we found out that they did it similar to what the letter that they did in the Fred Hampton movie. They created that and they wanted to say we were feeding children and then brainwashing them with coloring books. That wasn't true. Uh, and so that point there is the only point all key. But everything else is absolutely correct. Thank you for that. Thank you so much. Look at me. I ain't had no idea. Now I got something to Google till midnight tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I, I mean, I'm just thinking about like the the show that Brandon and I worked on at Current Space. That it was like right after, well, it was deep in the middle of the pandemic. It was like in July. Um, we had been trapped inside, and the, but it was also after that kind of avalanche of like institutions doing this kind of fake um, performative activism thing, and then just like pushing for diversity. And then I think that we wanted to like the the, the show was called um, The People United, and we were trying to like mark and document what was happening in Baltimore City last summer. So there were seven black Baltimore photographers um, and we displayed their work. That was one half of the exhibition. We also sold their work and the work went directly to them, which was awesome. And the other half was this video installation that um, Brandon worked on. So like that was, uh, when I saw this question, that was immediately what I thought of. It was like, how do, how do, you, how do you use art as activism? Like one of the photos was by a black woman photographer named Shane McCoy and it literally just said fuck 12. Um, and like that was on the side of the street for everybody to see at all times. And, and then just also that was like side by side with the footage that's in this exhibition as well, just like showing the police officers committing, um, committing these actions. Um, so yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, this last question is for everybody. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and I'll just save my answer for later. Um, do you think that police reform is possible? If anybody wants to jump in at any point, I'm gonna say no. I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll start, because I feel like Eddie and Bofina have way better things to say about this. My short answer is no. Um, police 
are they sabotage reform. They use reform. Reform is primarily to get more stuff, get more cameras, get more money. So it always has been. Um, and so I think that's something everyone just needs to watch out for is that the police are intent on sabotaging reform. Only the idea is that the police do a do things that for what finally the sort of ruling class decides they're a bridge too far. They've injured someone or killed someone. And there was enough of a response from the working class that the and the you know the petite bourgeoisie is scared enough that something has to be done. So they do a thing where they decide to give the cops more and more gear and take them through more bias training, things like that, all of which sort of line the pockets of police further. So the relationship between increasing funding for police and training police to be better, I think is contradictory. It's why the defund the police uh, movement is incredibly like obvious and simple and great because it's saying we need to remove the funds from them. And that's sort of adjacent to abolition. But um, I, I'm really suspicious of reform. I think that every, that police officers use reform to, uh, to gain power, not to cede power. So that'd be my answer. I'm gonna let Eddie drop some gems before me. Cause I feel like Eddie is about to just, so I'm gonna let Eddie go first. <laughs> All right, but my answer is short. No, they can't be reformed. We need to replace them. I mean, you're always going to need to protect the community. You're going to need to have some some way to keep the people in the community safe. The idea is that if we want to protect the community, then we have to create the kind of police force that's part of the community. They live in the community. They uh, They live up the street, down the street. They know you. They know other people. They don't have to live next door, but they should live in the community. People should have the power to say, this police is not working in the interest of the community. They have to go. Uh, you know, the citizen review boards, that kind of stuff need to have teeth, subpoena power, the ability to fire. Uh, you can't reform fascism. Fascism lived for reform. Uh, 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 like Brandon said, um, if, if too much heat is on the ruling class or what's going on, they will change the scenario. Uh, they will put an Obama face in, in front of you. They will, you know, they will make you think it's going to get better next year. Just wait for the vote. Uh, so, no, they can't be reformed, but they can be replaced. You can rebuild a citizen police force that has the interest of the citizen. And, you know, lives are more valuable than property. Why would you kill somebody over a donut or a stolen car? You know, lives are what should decide when you use the police and how you use the police. The rest of that stuff, property, material, et cetera, you know, it's, it's, it's way down the line, you know. So the the long and the short answer obviously was no. It's a no for me. It's a no for me. No, we can't reform no fucking police. The police in itself is based on a system of dehumanization. How can you reform something that has no humanity? How is that possible? It's not possible, right? Because if we take away the politics and we look down at the core of policing, that its foundation is quite literally dehumanization and genocide, right? And so how exactly do we look at a system like that and say, hmm, 
What can we do to sprinkle some great old reform on this? But even more, what Brandon said is what happens is a lot of the things we call reform is simply the police stabilizing itself. Because with reforms comes more money, new positions, new departments, beautiful new cars, new uniforms, new rebranding. And so all we do when we talk about reform is we place more and more investment and that system becomes stronger and stronger, right? And that is what we've seen that has happened over the years with reform. Um, but also I think is what people need to actually be asking and, and to be honest is do they or are they invested in liberation for black people? Forget, like, because at the core of it, that is the question that you have to ask yourself, right? Because what I say all the time is policing cannot exist, right? And black people have freedom. It's not possible. Can't do it. it don't co correlate. Them two things can exist at one time. And so if we know that this is not a possibility, then my question is, what are we invested in? And so I always like for people to say what they mean. Say that you're invested in the genocide of black lives. Just say that. That's all you need to say. Say that you're invested in white supremacy. Um, and what's, what's interesting too, as people often forget as well is the ways in which white lives are impacted by cops. And because that is a very inherent part of white supremacy, right? It's oftentimes white supremacy would kill whiteness in order to protect white supremacy. And I'd be looking at white people like, you might want to get with the program, baby, because you next too. Like the state does not like, yeah, black people are first baby and your little white tail about to be next. Because if we look at the stats and we look at what's happening, particularly with poor uh, poor white communities, right, and poor rural communities, is they going to prisons too. They stuck up in the system too. But because we're so invested in seeing like complete, just, I don't even know what to call it, violence of black lives, nobody pays attention to that. And that is part of the wonderful genius of what white supremacy has taught white people, that somehow they will benefit. And it's like, you benefit now, baby, but you next, because it's going to kill you too. And so across the board, we all need to decide, like, what kind of world do we actually want? Um, and so I keep saying, like, policing is new. Guys, like, policing started just yesterday. Policing is not a old function of this world that somehow if we took it away, the world would not exist. It is not. It is freaking new. And so as new as it is, we should understand that it is an arm that we should take away. And we didn't get a chance to talk about this, um, but I also want to bring up school policing. The same thing when I talk about abolition, I'm not just talking about abolition of the city police or the state police also school policing and all of the reaches in which we've allowed policing to go. All of that shit gotta go as well. So no, we're not reforming that. Hurry up, let's start the protest. I'm ready, like, come on, clock it, let's go. Time to go. I got you, I'm gonna pick you up, Eddie. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a great place to leave it. And I think in, in the absence of reform or the hope of reform, I think that all we can do as, you know, as a cultural institution, um, is to continue to lift up voices, right, and offer this platform for 
for not only, you know, um, Eddie's voice and Belfina's voice, but but definitely the work of, of journalists and other artists like Brandon that are telling these stories. Because I think that's, you know, that's the important part here is, right, that the stories have to continue to be told. And um, I'm so glad that you all joined us today. And I'm so um, thankful for, for Brandon and Terry and your role in this project. And, and Eddie and, and, and Belfina, thank you for adding another level and another layer to kind of this conversation today. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right, y'all. Bye, everyone. Have a good day. Thank you so much.